This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. very warm welcome back to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. It is great to be back on the airwaves with my longer format Wellbeing Show here. Thank you for joining me. Now today I am especially thrilled to be sharing this episode with you as I have just had a fascinating chat with the NHS GP and Sunday Times best-selling author Dr. Rupi Ujla. Rupi works day-to-day in emergency medicine, super busy right now, obviously, but his experience in this field has led him to develop a real passion for preventative medicine, with a particular interest in the ways that eating well can transform our health. And following this interest, he enrolled for a master's in nutritional medicine and launched something called The Doctor's Kitchen, which you may well have heard of. This is where he has been sharing both his love of food and medicinal effects of eating well ever since. He's also the founding director of Culinary Medicine, a not-for-profit organisation which aims to equip our doctors with the nutritional know-how that is so often sadly lacking in their traditional training. Well, we had an insightful conversation about struggles with his own health led him to appreciate the power of nutrition, as well as the work that needs to be done to put food back on the menu at medical school. I am so looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this and more. So do please leave comments on Instagram after the show. And don't forget that if you'd like to watch our chat, you can now find full video podcasts over on the Lizelle Wellbeing YouTube channel. Yes, you can. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. So Rupi, thank you so much for hopping on to my podcast here. It's, it's such a pleasure. I'm a genuine fan of your work and everything that you're doing. I appreciate that. It's, and the pleasure is mine, honestly. I've been listening to your podcast for a while and, uh, and your work's amazing. So yeah, oh, it's well, an absolute privilege. Oh, well, no, likewise. And I think, you know, let's start off by talking a bit about your background, because it's unusual, I have to say, even in this day and age, to find a practicing medical doctor who is so into food and the value of food as medicine. What, what was your journey? Oh, so my journey through food, I think, started when I was a kid. So I grew up in a Punjabi household. Um, my mum was an exceptional cook. Um, she introduced us not only to traditional Punjabi cuisine and Indian cuisine and you know the different elements of spice blending, but also other uh, cultures. And, and that's how I learned about food. So we would have Italian food, um, American food, a whole bunch of different types of cuisine from Southeast Asia, and she'd be super experimental. Um, and so my, my love of cooking really came from the environment that my mum essentially made for us growing up as kids. So I, I think from that perspective, it's quite unusual. And also my mum's quite, um, she features quite a bit in my story, actually. So <laughs> my my mum's uh, quite a creative person. Um, she's done law. She's uh, an investment banker in the 80s and 90s. 
wow. started her own graphic design agency. She's um, done property. She's done economics. Oh, she's, yeah, yeah, she's done it all. And she still does stuff now. Like she builds chairs and like uh, she designs clothing and all this. Uh, every time I go back Amazing. home, uh, she's doing something new. And, and the same, that sort of like creative curiosity she brought to food. And before I went to medical school, I had no idea how to cook myself because my mom was the, the, the one cooking for all of us at home. Um, she was like, well, you need to learn how to cook. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to feed yourself. Um, so she, she taught me three recipes, and one of which um, is the lemongrass Thai curry uh, that I actually put in my first book with her permission. Um, and when I got to medical school, everyone thought I was this exceptional cook because I could make this That's one That's what you dish. turned out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it had like everything like holy basil and galangal and oh, cream and, you know, all these things that we didn't really have readily available in our supermarket shelves. And I was knocking this up in, in the middle of like halls uh, in medical school. So I had to I had to keep up this pretense of like being a good cook at med school, um, which is super interesting. Um, but the, the journey through uh, food as medicine and, and nutritional medicine and everything I talk about now really started when I was um, a junior doctor. So about 11 years ago now, when I qualified, um, I started suffering from atrial fibrillation, which for your listeners is an irregular heartbeat. And in my case, uh, when my heartbeat was going very, very fast, 200 beats per minute sometimes. And these episodes, yeah, if I could describe the feeling, it's, um, it's as if you're about to pass out and you've just like run a, a marathon back to back it's it's a it's a very odd feeling um and i what, had what the, causes that do we know yeah so that that was the start of my journey really because i was a 24 year old with no pre-existing health issues no issues in my family line um who suddenly just kept on going to these episodes lasting anywhere between 24 and 48 hours of of just this irregular heartbeat um and so i saw some of the best practitioners and I still see some of the best cardiologists in 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 London and probably globally as well um, who try to figure this out so I had electrophysiology studies where they put a wire into the heart and look for any uh, short circuiting for want of a better term Uh, I had all the blood tests you can imagine looking at any uh, issues with my electrolytes I had uh, cardiac MRIs, uh, echocardiograms, 24-hour tapes, everything. And, and it was a clean bill of health. And, you know, there was nothing else that was asked about my, my diet, lifestyle, and everything. But three months into, into the job of being a junior doctor, which is when I first started having these episodes, you can imagine <laughs> late nights, yeah. uh, critical learning skills, learning on the job, um, not sleeping properly, eating food from the hospital canteen. It was a huge shock going on that time and I realized that well now I realized that my threshold for um illness and in, in, in the way it presented itself in my case was atrial fibrillation is a lot lower than my peers and I had to be a lot more um proactive I guess uh, about my health so so yeah that that was the, the start of my journey and the, to this day there isn't uh, really a trigger that's been found for me but the, there are a number of different reasons why people might have that um mm-hmm. alcohol can be a trigger um certain medications mm-hmm. um sometimes you do have a re-entry pathway which is uh, a, an abnormality in the anatomy of the heart and the way the electricity is asynchronous so it doesn't go in the in the correct um path um there can be some structural issues as a result of uh, a number of other procedures that somebody might have had and um, we tend to see atrial fibrillation in an older population which is why yeah. it's quite unusual um and sometimes you can have it as a result of uh, infection so some patients that we've had uh coming into intensive care because of uh covid-19 have been found to have atrial fibrillation and that can happen uh, when you're suffering any type of infection so how once you were aware of this health issue and and the stresses of of working as a junior doctor how did you change your diet or, or didn't you did you just go back to your mum and say help what what can i eat now that's that's going to be good <laughs> yeah so um i, I actually uh, ignored my mum's advice initially um so i i was you know a junior doctor just came out of one of the one of the most well-established medical schools in the world and obviously i had the arrogance about me of well i i know much more than my mum she's you know not a medic and 
Um, if these uh, hugely well-established cardiologists are telling me that I need to have an ablation, which was a procedure where you put a guide wire into the heart and you essentially burn an area of misfiring cells such that it doesn't cause that asynchrony in the way your heart beats, then I was definitely going to go for that. And there was no two wits about it. And at the time, the way we performed procedures, you had to take an anticoagulant for a number of months prior to the procedure. And I was going to load myself up on warfarin. And I spoke to a whole bunch of my colleagues and they were like, yeah, absolutely. You should definitely do that. It's, you know, you're a very good candidate. You're young. You don't have any weight issues. Um, you don't have any pre-existing problems. It's going to be a quick procedure and it'll be fine. And for a lot of people it is, uh, I have to hasten to add that. But my mum was like, you need to sort out your diet and lifestyle before Mm. you entertain more um, any more interventions that could potentially bring you harm. And so really to appease my mum, I told my cardiologist, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) to appease my mum, I told my cardiologist, I asked them actually, I said, look, would I have your blessing if I was to take the medication that I was on? I was on bisoprolol and a flecainide, um, so an antiarrhythmic and a beta blocker. So if I maintain taking the medications and I try some changes for about six months or so, um, would, would that be okay? And they said, look, that's fine, but you will need this ablation. And the earlier you do it, the better, because you, you can go into what's called persistent AF, where the, the episodes constantly there rather than two to three times per week which is what I was suffering from so I took a very back to basics approach um I had no idea where to start as I'm sure a lot of your listeners might be aware now at medical school we're just not taught uh nutrition um we're not uh taught you know the value of lifestyle uh up until this point we can talk about that later if you like um Mm -hmm. and so uh, you know I just went through first principles out went cereal for breakfast in came nuts and and vegetables and leftovers from the night before i never used to eat at the hospital canteen and those soggy sandwiches anymore i'd always bring my dark green leafy vegetables and and uh, all the leftover cook i basically applied what i knew about cooking to healthy cooking and just mm-hmm. increase my plant uh, consumption i started having a lot more fiber in my diet uh, i was nicknamed tupperware boy by my consultant because i'd always come <laughs> in with my tupperware. Um, tupperware brilliant yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, and the other thing is you know there are a few other intangible aspects so i never gave up being a doctor i wasn't going to allow a condition to frustratingly put my career on the back burner. Um, Mm. I started optimizing my sleep as much as possible because I knew I I could recognize that these were were triggers and the stress was definitely a trigger. So I started meditation again, something that my parents taught me when I was a teenager, um, Mm. when I was doing my GCSEs. So it it was this whole collection of different elements of things that I did, one after the other, that probably resulted in me reverting my condition and so my condition went from two to three times per week i was having these af episodes to zero within about a year and a half that's incredible what did your cardiologist say because they were obviously waiting for you to ring up and book yourself in for surgery yeah so it was it was quite an embarrassing situation because i actually didn't want to admit to them all the quirky things i was doing um (laughs) and and it, it seems a bit strange now looking back on it but at the time you got to think like even me starting the doctor's kitchen was was quite cavalier you know a doctor talking about food as medicine a doctor talking about nutrition and you know talking about the other sort of like softer science subjects as they're traditionally known uh, and so back in 2010 uh it was kind of I, I i just didn't feel that i had the authority as a junior doctor to say you know i've done all these different things this is what i think is going on to a cardiologist that was telling me literally like you know, uh, 12 months before, you're going to need to have this procedure. Otherwise, you know, it, uh, you, it. you mm. just get, yeah, exactly. It could, could be really harmful, which, which, you know, com- completely within their right to do. And, and you know, that th- they should definitely take that um, stance. But I, I think we're, we're becoming a lot more appreciative of the science behind other things now. Mm. And so w- with that in mind, you know, when I said that these are my CGs, I'm not having any episodes anymore. They put it down to what we call spontaneous remission. Um, ah, miraculous or, recovery yeah, yeah exactly yeah exactly <laughs> which 
it's funny, I don't know if you've spoken to him yet, but Dr. Jeffrey Redinger studied this at Harvard um, School of Medicine, uh, all these different spontaneous remissions and actually looked at the patterns um, of, of people who have these spontaneous remissions, quote unquote. Um, and there seemed to be a lot of similarities there. So there's something in all the different things that I was doing intuitively yes. and uh, the result that I had. Uh, and that's something I'm dedicating the rest of my life to, to studying and sharing with people. But um, yeah, a period of quiescence, I think that was the term they used uh, for my atrial fibrillation. I, I keep on going back and, you know, haven't had any episodes and these yeah. are my CGs and these are my bloods and stuff. But at what point did you come clean or have you never said? Uh, I think they're pretty much aware now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they've probably read my story. Um, and I think a lot more cardiologists in general, I think, are, are coming round to the idea of of all these a, a number of different factors that we've traditionally put to the wayside things yes. like stress actually mm. which is you know quite an intangible concept and you know everyone's stressed and whenever i inquire about stress i never use that word because it's such a huge umbrella term that can mean multiple things for different people i instead inquire about you know the symptoms sleep disruption or um vague symptoms of brain fog or fatigue or you know um any things like that that could be subtle because I, I actually find in clinical practice people um not everyone but people are generally unwilling to come forward and actually say you know i am stressed and yeah. i think i need help from that point of view because it's almost seemed like a sign of weakness mm. um which i think we need to re-establish a relationship with because we're all stressed um, yeah oh gosh yeah, that, never, never more so absolutely absolutely which in a way, you know, perversely, it does put the focus back on support for the immune system, prioritizing sleep, eating better. I think, you know, maybe if we look back to the very first lockdown, everybody got into home baking, the supermarket mm. shelves were just cleared of flour and sugar and everyone was baking banana bread. And, and I think as time has moved on, we've realized that that's not ultimately going to be that helpful. What do you find in, in terms of this, particularly looking from, from the heart perspective, but also more generally, but you know, it, it, it's kind of, it's been always fat was demonized. And now we're realizing that, that, that there's much more of a link with sugar in terms of our immune system, refined carbs, even cardiologists now talking about the, mm. the, the, the goodness of good fats and, and the perils of refined carbs and sugars. What's yeah. your view on that? What's your take? You know, both personally as somebody who's obviously very personally invested in um, cardiac matters, but also more, more generally with your work. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I think the way to approach these sorts of subjects is um, remind ourselves of our inherent bias towards being binary. Um, we love to have a sort of silver bullet for things. If you just get rid of fat, you'll be fine. If you just get rid of sugar, you'll be fine. And, and really there is so much nuance to the subject of nutritional science. Uh, and that's before we even talk about how we need to personalize it to the person in front of you. So with the sugar uh, debate, if, if, you, if you want to call it that, there are clear issues with refined sugars in our, in our diets. And it kind of frustrates me when people argue back against that. Sugar is pervasive in, in most of the products that you see in supermarket shelves, including the healthy supermarkets and, and the healthier junk food that's marketed to us as unrefined or whatever. It, it, the same thing happens. The same biochemical uh, issues and, and impact on our physiology occurs with refined sugars, whether they're natural or, 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 or you know, from maple syrup, etc. Um, so it doesn't really matter whether you're eating a, a, a date ball or a Mars bar once it's uh, in your Honestly, body, it, it will have sugars. the same effect. I, I, you know, I have patients who wear uh, continuous glucose monitors and some people, even with oats, and I'm a big fan of oats, don't get me wrong, but even with oats, they'll see a huge spike in their uh, glucose go up with oats. And, you know, it depends on the type of oat. Is this an instant oat? Is it a flavored oat? Uh, the same thing with yogurts, you know, yogurts is, is a lot of fat, but if you're having a flavored yogurt, then that's going to have a lot of refined sugars in as well. So even the healthier marketed items are going ha to be problematic for certain people. So my thing about the sugars is, yes, we w have way too much refined sugar in our diet and actually removing as many different types of sugars that don't need to be in food would be a good pragmatic strategy for a lot of people because sugar is hidden in everything with fat it's the same thing applies because 
it's not fat per se. Fat is a very important macronutrient. Uh, it's the quality of the fat. And that's why one of my principles of healthy eating is quality fat. So the fats that you find in nuts and seeds are demonized to the same extent as fats that you'll find in fried foods or, you know, yeah, or, or like, you know, meats that have been barbecued or taken to super high temperatures or, you know, re- refined in, in a, a burger with all the other stuff that you, you add in it. And there's also something to, to be said about that combination of refined fat with poor, uh, poor quality fat and refined sugars. This toxic blend of those two that you'll find perfectly arranged in Western food or the SAD diet, the standard American diet, is uniformly disastrous for uh, people of, of all backgrounds, particularly those from um, African and Indian backgrounds. And that's why I'm very vocal about the subject because I think the propensity toward cardiovascular problems disproportionately affects us. And we need to be a lot more vocal about this. And I see what my parents frenzy and, and you know, a whole bunch of different friends and, and their parents and stuff. And I, you know, it just makes me a bit angry that we're not being a lot more vocal about this as we should be. So my approach when it comes to sugar and fat is, Look at where sugar is necessary uh, in terms of, okay, heightening the flavor of a meal, but not something that you have every single day, like a sugary breakfast or a donut or a croissant or whatever. You know, those are luxury items. They're not staples. And the same thing I would apply to bread as well. Bread, um, yes, can be a, a, a great addition to your diet, but not something that you will want to have every single day if you are at risk of metabolic conditions. Um and, and a lot of patients that I see, unfortunately, mm. do have those issues. And the same thing with fats. So fats, you want to look at quality fats, not the uh, refined oils that we have littered across our supermarkets. The ones yeah. that we hold have in their whole form. So nuts, seeds and, and cold pressed oils, I think, are a good addition to the diet. You talk about metabolic disorders and these different communities. Is that why... Um, the ethnic communities are more at risk with COVID of having more severe symptoms, do you think? Does the the metabolic syndrome play into that? There's a number of different um, hypotheses actually as toward that. So we know that uh, most definitely obesity and um, issues with sugar regulation are, are, are probably to blame for why people from those minority groups are disproportionately affected. Um, there is also a potential genetic component as well that I haven't mm-hmm. fully researched, but I, I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't be surprised if there is something like that. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, unfortunately, those minority groups are going to be in poorer communities where they don't have access to healthy foods that could be protective. And so I like to look at it from two sides of the story. It's not just because okay, we're more likely to have these conditions and that gives us more risk. We're less likely to have access to the, the healthy foods or the healthy environments, the healthy lifestyles that actually protect us as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's definitely nuance to that conversation, but we, we certainly have to be a lot more open about the likelihood of obesity being uh, a, a, a factor. Um, and with the whole obesity argument, you know, I think perhaps the way it's been described on the news can be quite alienating for people because obesity is is one of the most complicated issues. And it's not just simply a calories in, calories out paradigm that really frustrates me. And it's still pervasive in nutritional science today. It has to be one that appreciates the complex mechanisms behind obesity. Genetics has involved, environment has an, an involvement. Um, our food supply and our food environment, absolutely. So, you know, there are, there are a whole bunch of issues when it comes to obesity. It's not just this person's eating too much and they've brought it on themselves. It's, it's yes. extremely frustrating. Yeah, I definitely agree. The Doctor's Kitchen, which you started, well, how long ago now? About five years ago now. Five years ago, gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's just become so well established. It almost feels longer. What was your first venture with that? Did you start it with a book? Did you start it with a podcast? How did it happen? Yeah, it, The Doctor's Kitchen was a real uh, like passion project. And it still is. I still see it as a passion project. Like I had the idea of The Doctor's Kitchen midway through my general practice training back in 2012. And it took me three years before I mustered the confidence to actually a talk about it with some of my colleagues both senior and junior and b get behind a camera and actually start some videos and and the idea came to me when I saw a patient 
and uh, he came into my consulting room and I'd been doing a lot of research and, you know, my, my own issues and, and talked to him about uh, why he was at risk of metabolic disease and what the ramifications of that were and why just changing his breakfast as a singular thing to do might be a very good start for him. Uh, and as he left, uh, I taught him how to make oats. As he left, he, he asked me the simplest question that I just assumed he knew how to do, which was to make some oats. And I was talking to him about <laughs> toppings. I, I, I literally talked like I was, I was thinking like two or three steps ahead for this person in front of me. And that's when the penny dropped. It was like, people don't know the basics of cooking and why they should be cooking from scratch. Mm-hmm. And that's when the doctor's kitchen was born in my head. It was a platform where I create recipes. I talk about the clinical research behind the ingredients I use in an effort to inspire everybody about not only the functional benefits of food, but also the beauty of food. There's so many intangible benefits to sitting around a table, regardless of what you're eating and slowing it down, you know? So, yeah. It's it's just, it's such a win-win, isn't it? On every level. I mean, you know, making a a bowl of simple porridge in the morning is really cheap. It's really healthy and beneficial. And it's it's very mindful, that process of stirring and creating and nourishing. I mean, nothing gives me greater pleasure than when I have people sitting around a table and I've created something and I serve it to them and they enjoy it. And the fact that it's fueling their bodies as well. I mean, there is literally nothing not to love, is there? I can use a, a double negative. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, what are your feelings on going very low carb? I mean, I'm very interested in, in this uh, whole thing. I, 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 did, I did an experiment not that long ago when I went keto. Mm. And uh, there's obviously, you know, research going way back and looking at children with um, autism or, or, you know, various spectrum disorders. You've got Atkins talking about, you know, just eating fat basically and, and nothing else. What are your views as as a doctor and as somebody who's obviously looked at this in some detail? Yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting space. Um, I've actually done a, a, a series of podcasts on it that I'm yet to release. One with a registered dietitian. That's one of the only dietitians that prescribes a ketogenic diet for the use in um, refractory epilepsy. So it's treatment refractory epilepsy. Uh, where the drugs have failed and we have to entertain different mechanisms of of trying to get it under control. And I also interviewed um, the parent of uh, a child who has been put on a ketogenic diet for the last year and has come off all but one medication. So there is so much benefit, I think, that is yet to be revealed of a very low carbohydrate diet, one that induces nutritional ketosis which is where instead of utilizing um, carbohydrates from food, you essentially utilize ketones from fat bodies 
um, to to generate energy. And and your liver has an incredible mechanism for maintaining your glucose levels because glucose is the most important fuel in your body. And that's why we have these mechanisms to endure starvation mode. Uh, we wouldn't have had access to food 24 hours a day as we do now, yeah. which is a you know a, a, a new phenomena. So we have to have had this machinery in us. And I think um, to your point about um, going on keto and and seeing what the benefits potentially are, I, I actually think yes that there is some benefit in enduring some um, restriction, if I can use that word, um, where you actually utilize some of the machinery that's built in all of us for some functional benefits. It, I, I've, I've talked about this in a, in a lot more detail, but I'll just talk about um, two things. One is that it induces a process called autophagy. Autophagy is, um, I'm going to be very vague about this, but it's essentially where you recycle old elements of cells that are either dysfunctional or um, getting on a bit and utilize them and package them into new cells. So it's essentially clearing up dysfunctional cells for the production of new ones. And that stimulates stem cells as well. And the other mm -hmm. thing is um, there, there is some benefit uh, in maintaining insulin sensitivity. So that's sensitivity to one of the most important anabolic hormones in your body, and that's insulin. So if you're barraging yourself with sugar all day long, three times a day, which a lot of us uh, unfortunately are doing unawares to this, you're um, having to utilize greater amounts of insulin in your body your body is having to produce greater amounts of insulin in your body to have the same desired effect which is to package sugar back into either muscle cells your liver or fat cells to maintain a, a stable level of blood sugar you don't want your blood sugar to go too high and so a periods of of fasting or a ketogenic diet which is very low carbohydrate can be useful in sensitizing against insulin there are a whole bunch of other benefits as well we can mm. go to histone deacetylases and genomic effects and all the rest of it but th those are the two main things that I, I pick out from do i think a ketogenic diet long term is useful for people who don't need it for therapeutic uh, benefits people who might be suffering with uh, refractory epilepsy or chronic migraines or pain um, I don't think those benefits have been shown out yet, and there aren't any long-term studies to show that. And I think pragmatically, it's probably not one of the best diets, I would say, um, given that uh, we are living for a lot longer these days. Uh, and I think that there are some negatives that we're yet to find out uh, about. So I think, yeah, as a, almost like a cyclical thing, um, it could be, it could yield some mm. benefits. But I, I tend to do a gentle fast every now and then um so and that's where yeah, i skip breakfast. i was going to ask you about that because mm. yeah okay so i i so you skip breakfast would you say every now and then yeah every yeah, now and then so yeah, if for example i'm doing an early shift and i have to leave um you know leave my place at 6 a.m in the morning i'm not going to rush breakfast at like 5 30 i'm just going to gently not eat for the morning and then break my fast quote unquote um at midday um and I think that's a really intuitive way of eating that works for me. And it, and it appeals for my convenience. One of my bosses uh, in A&E uh, actually does 5-2 every now and then. And he finds the days where he does, just for listeners, um, it's the 5-2 the is where you eat normally, essentially, for five days. And you have two days where you have sub 800 or sub 500 calories, um, which is like one meal a day or something. Um, and he actually finds the days when he works uh, is when he likes to do the two days, uh, i.e. the sub 800 calorie days, um, because he doesn't have to think about, you know, getting his sandwich or getting whatever food that he can, he can muster during a shift. So I think there are some really interesting intuitive ways to do it. The other thing I think is it's, it's almost pertinent to say, given that we're seeing a rise in um, an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating uh, and people who are um, falling foul of, of eating disorders. And I, I see that even mm. in A&E these days, you know, this isn't for everyone. And I certainly don't recommend yeah. um, people who may not even recognize in themselves that they might have an issue with with healthy eating or, or eating in general yeah. to entertain these sorts of practices um so it, it really has to be personalized uh, but that's definitely something that works for me and I, and I feel that it has therapeutic value yeah really interesting no i mean I, when i did it i did it for about six weeks and i had my blood fats monitored before and after 
And, you know, I was expecting, I was literally just eating basically fat for six weeks, you know, know, fatty meat and all the rind on bacon and all of that. Um, And my blood fats improved. You know, it it was really, I mean, I I expected them maybe to go up a bit or, you know, possibly to stay the same. I don't know, but I didn't expect them to improve. So that was uh, quite an extraordinary thing. And also my energy levels and my clarity of thinking was improved. Now, what I noticed when when I was eating in that way is that nothing I had came out of processed food. So this is really bad news, isn't it, for the the processed food industry? If we talk about reducing refined carbs, lowering sugars, cooking from scratch, all the great things that you talk about, how are they going to make money out of us? Yeah, well, I think they've they've always got (laughs) interesting. Yeah, they've they've always got interesting ways of formulating according to what the current bodies say. So, if you take the whole low-fat movement, for example, as soon as it was established that fat was bad by the relevant authorities, they decided to reformulate and remove everything and just bung it, bung a load of sugar in because when you take out fat, you take out taste. Um, And so, they have a way of of mimicking what the current state of play or the the current mindset is of the consumer and right now what we're seeing is health and so if you could brand your package in some natural mahogany colors and put unrefined on things and a number of different things like that and and repackage it as something healthy and that's that's what the consumer wants but it doesn't generally mean that it is healthy it's it's the same thing with the five a day campaign you know spaghetti has been shown to contain one or two of your five a day, which is wholly inaccurate because it goes against the ethos of what the five a day campaign was about. Uh, And so I think the way we're going to change what we see on the shelves is if we become a lot more conscious, pragmatic consumers ourselves, we really need to educate ourselves. And this is why, you know, you do what you do and I do what I do with the doctor's kitchen, because unless you change people's education around the subject matter, you will not change the food landscape. You can legislate as much as you want. It's not going to happen. You have to start with education. If I didn't educate myself, I'd be none the wiser. I'd still be a regular you know, practitioner, and there's nothing wrong with that, but a regular practitioner who thought more of pharmaceuticals than the simple tools that we have within our locus of control as patients. And we're all patients regardless of, you know, whether you like it, uh, whether you like to think of yourself of that or not. But um, yeah, to, to, to your point about the, the refined carbohydrates and stuff, you know, it is around 80% of the things that we find on supermarket shelves, which is hugely worrying. Um, And in an era where we're experiencing uh, political unrest with Brexit and everything else, I do worry. But and that's why instead of looking at the supermarkets, I want to focus on education, educating doctors, educating children, educating the general public. That's how we make real change. Mm. One of the things I really admire you for is exactly that is your work educating doctors. Talk about the, the culinary medicine that you're doing, your work with your with your colleagues. Yeah. So. After I started The Doctor's Kitchen in 2015, uh, Instagram and social media and stuff, and then a book came along and I was writing the book and I remember just thinking, I don't want to be the only person talking about this. I want to inspire and motivate my colleagues to be part of the herd, part of the pack. Um, and and I looked across uh, the pond to what America was doing, um, which is quite ironic considering their obesity issues. And they had started culinary medicine back in 2009. It was Tulane Medical School and a whole bunch of other medical schools that are pretty prominent. And they started teaching not only the foundations of nutrition to their medical students, but also teaching them how to cook in a culinary school. And I remember flying over there to meet one of the um, uh, pioneers of of, um, culinary medicine in the States. And and I just said to him, look, I want to do what you're doing in the UK. And he said, well, you just need to start and and just go to medical schools and, and, and just do it. And I did literally, I just, exactly that. I, I, I put out a call on social media um, one Sunday. I said, look, this is what I want to create. I, I want this to be collaborative a, a, across registered dietitians, across professional chefs, as well as doctors. I um, eventually want to take it to nursing and all uh, allied health professionals as well. And uh, we created a course in the UK, which is currently in Bristol Medical School and now as part of compulsory medical education at UCL Medical School, which is an incredible um, uh, university. And we literally teach the medical students year five and, and around that as well, 
how to cook as well as the foundations of nutrition. And it's honestly, Liz, I, I want you to come and, and visit when we start opening the kitchen back up oh, because right. everything's remote. <laughs> but the vibe in the kitchen is incredible because you've got doctors talking to culinary students, talking to registered dietitians. We, we, we base everything we cook around a clinical case. So Mr. X comes in, 42-year-old, these are his blood pressure medications. This is what he's eating. This is his lifestyle. What is the one thing that you would change? How are you going to motivate this person in eight minutes? That's all you've got. Um, and, you know, it's just a newfound appreciation from these young, impressionable medical students that haven't been tainted by, yeah. you know, pharma and, you know, just, just prescribing yeah. drugs all day long. They still have that energy and that, that lust for helping patients that, you know, unfortunately, as you progress through your medical career, can get lost if you're not excited mm-hmm. about it. So I just think it's, it's a fantastic thing that we're doing. It's a nonprofit. And we're gaining a lot more traction uh, across other medical schools. And the aim is to get this as compulsory across all medical schools in the country and beyond. That's so fantastic. I had no idea that it was just really growing in that way and that you were actually literally t- treating food as medicine, you know, taking yeah. it with a case study. And how, how do we fix this person by what's going Abs- on their plate? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the good thing is that we're making it as realistic as possible, right? So it's not like we're just recommending a kale salad to whoever comes through the door. We're personalizing it to the person in front of them. We talk about their cultural heritage. We talk about the fact that they might be food insecure. What if they've only got access to food banks? What if they've only got access to, you know, the, 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 the least nutritious food? How do you actually make a meal out of what you find yeah. uh in 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 food stores so you know we, we try and offer all angles because as an nhs practitioner who still works in a and in, in general practice you know i'm privy to different people from different backgrounds and you can't take a uniform approach very much like what we do uh in, at a government and political level to food like this is the food plate this is what you should be eating or this is how many carbohydrates everyone in the country should be eating does it it's, it's, mm. it's complete nonsense it doesn't work like that for for, for the person in front of you. So yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's great for me to see that other people are just as passionate about this. And the more we grow, I think the more we can actually educate at a ground level and not just doctors, but also nursing, anyone who has ta- uh, contact with patients really should be educated in the basics of nutrition and, and how to make simple changes toward a healthier lifestyle. And talking of contact with patients, you're obviously still very much working on the front line in the NHS. And you're obviously fully involved in COVID and have been, you know, extraordinarily, um, you know, stretched with that. How are you personally protecting your own immune system? What are you doing? Have you made any changes to better support your own immunity through food? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I I, I already have a a basic level of how I like to eat. And that's plant focused, lots of fiber, um, plenty of colors. And I've maintained that uh, to, to a T actually. Um, and I think that's a good foundation. The other thing is concentrating on sleep. So I think sleep is a, is a really strong foundation onto which to build immunonutrition. So I, I wear an aura ring. I'm pretty religious about the number of hours I get. And whenever I see that, you know, I might have only had six hours, I know not to push myself that day. So I won't exert myself with a high intensity interval training exercise. I won't go for a long run. I'll actually relax and I'll make sure I go to sleep earlier that day. So that's one of the things. I do take a vitamin D3 supplement. I've taken, I tend to take that throughout the the year um, because of my darker skin tone and the fact that I have had low vitamin D in the past. So um, how, much, how much do you take? I take 2000 IU a day. Yeah, yeah, which is um, uh, double the what the recommendations are, I believe. Um, I I also uh, take uh, omega three as a supplement and uh, vitamin B complex as well because I'm predominantly plant based, but a lot of us are B twelve uh, deficient. Um, I also have been doing a ginger and turmeric uh, broth uh, that I, nice. I basically it's, I really like it. So it tastes genuinely amazing. I I basically blend up um the ginger and turmeric which is fresh i I get it from a a, a supplier um and i put it in warm water uh, or boiling water uh, quite like a a rolling boil let's say for about 10 minutes and i let it steep and then i drain out and i put that in the fridge and i'll probably have like two shots of that every single day 
whether or not that's going to have an impact on my propensity of getting an illness, I literally have no idea, but it makes me feel a lot better. So <laughs> I'm, definitely, I'm definitely doing that. Um, I haven't started taking vitamin C uh, tablets because I haven't seen too much evidence with the one gram. I've only seen it with like super high levels, um, mm. which are quite hard to get. So we're talking like above 10 grams. Um, and I, I, I think I've experimented that before and it gave me a bit of a tummy ache. So I've decided not to say, but I get a lot of fresh vitamin C from my food anyway, which is pretty co- colorful. Mm. Um, and other than that, the other thing that, um, springs to mind is, uh, zinc. Um, and zinc, uh, has been shown for the common cold to very marginally reduce the, um, duration and severity of, of illness. And that's just with normal RSV. Um, but I haven't seen too much uh, with COVID. The thinking is, is that it's an ionophore. So it, it actually transports um, uh, things across the cell membrane. So if you're taking vitamin C, for example, it's that combination that makes it a little bit more uh, effective when it comes to preventing viral replication within the cell. Um, but uh, I, I haven't started taking that myself. I know colleagues that have done that, and medical colleagues, but uh, I personally haven't done that. Yeah, interesting. Your book, 321, I have to say, is just such a good read. And, you know, to be honest, when I get a new book that crosses my desk, it's almost like a bit of a sigh, you know, another (laughs) one. What can this person possibly be saying that's new or interesting? And, you know, and actually, it is brilliantly written, brilliantly put together, and so very relevant, I think, now. And I love the way that you describe 321. Do you want to say exactly what 321 actually means in the book? Yeah. Well, first of all, that coming from you, Liz, that honestly, I mean, so much, uh, really, really does. Because I know, I can imagine how many books cross your desk. Um, but 321 is uh, essentially the formula that we use for all doctor's kitchen meals now. It's three portions of fruit and vegetables per person, two servings per recipe, and only using one pan. So it's curries, tray bags, stews, casseroles, all the sort of easy comfort food. And the reason why 321 is because we need to increase fruit and vegetable consumption. If there's one thing that I want people to take away is more fruits and vegetables. It has a dose effect on your uh, lower uh, propensity or risk of cancer, autoimmune conditions, diabetes, metabolic issues. That's the simplest strategy that we have. Two portions, you can double it, you feed a family of four or have your food for lunch the next day. And one pan because it saves them the washing up. And it, yeah. just, <laughs> Love it, <that>. just, <laughs> it just makes it so much easier. Like at the end of the day, uh, at the end of a long shift, for example, the last thing I want to do yeah. is, you know, toast nuts here and, and do all this, even if it takes 20 minutes or 30 minutes, yeah. you know, the stress of that is so much if it's just in one pan everything is fluid and easy going and mm. you know it's just simpler that's how I like to cook so yeah I'm so glad you liked it I genuinely love it I'm actually going to buy a second copy because I've, I've got one of my kids at uni and again you know one pan cooking that's kind of that's as far as it goes really you know partly because you don't have the facilities if you you know if you're eating in halls you'll remember from your medical school days you know you don't have the luxury of, of big kitchens and even people living you know in small cramped cooking dishes even if you know, I can imagine you know if you're even if you're camping or you're on the run or whatever you know you've literally just got that one hog going and and you can create the most extraordinary dishes and I think it must be you know testament to your mother perhaps here and the flavors and the way that you put things together everything just looks so delicious uh, it doesn't feel that it's, you know, I'm cooking this because it's good for me. I'm I'm cooking it because it is the recipe that I want to go to, to create great I'm, flavor uh, and great taste. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, flavor and function is my motto in the kitchen. You, you can't just eat for functional benefits because it's, it's bland, it's boring, and you, you can't establish a habit. And you've got to pay homage to where the dishes come from and, you know, the, the flavorful, intangible benefits that we spoke about earlier of, you know, the enjoyment of food, the pleasure of food, it's just so important in today's day and age because, you know, we don't just want to eat because we want to protect our immune system and, and you know, prevent cancer and do everything we can to prevent all these uh, issues. We want, a, we want a big hug from our food, especially right now. Love it. Yeah. You know, we, we need a big hug. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. We totally do. Before we go, I just wanted to pick up on something which I also really loved and I've never seen it written anywhere else in any other book or in any other um, kind of piece of content. And when you were doing the acknowledgements at the back, 
your last bit, and this resonates with me, particularly for reasons you'll probably understand, is you say, I also want to thank myself, you know, having gone through the long list of your mum, your dad, your sister, your closest friends, your culinary medicine UK, your scientists, your patients, etc. And then it says, I also want to thank myself. Um, I know that sounds incredibly narcissistic, but I'm the type of person who suffers classic imposter syndrome and I'm plagued with self-doubt. Is that really so? That's so, so. I'm, I, I'm very impressed that you read the whole book to the end and you picked up Right on that. to the last line, Rippy. <laughs> I know, I know, because, like, I, I wasn't expecting anyone to pick up on that. Um, um, yeah, I, I, that is me, 100%. I'm so glad it resonates with you because okay, uh, it makes me feel like I'm not on my own in this. But, yeah, I am massively plagued with self-doubt. Massively, like, you know... When you learn more, when you're experienced and immersed in this industry even more, you realize how little you know. And also, that's why I, I will never regard myself as an expert in anything because yeah. the more you learn, the more you realize there is just a wealth of information. And, and you have to be settled with that. And actually, when you yeah. surrender to that, it's very comforting. It really is. Yeah, I think staying humble realizing as you say the more you know the more you realize what you don't know yeah and uh, and it's a mistake to, to think otherwise well you clearly know a huge amount and i'm so grateful uh, to have you here your book 321 is just out and i wish you massive massive success with it you certainly deserve all the glory and thank you for being with me you're definitely not an imposter <laughs> my pleasure my pleasure Liz. And that is it for today's episode. And as always, you will find all the links and resources mentioned on today's show over on lizardwellbeing.com. And there you can sign up for my free weekly newsletters packed with delicious and nutritious recipes. Very appropriate after today's chat. And I'd just like to say a huge and heartfelt thank you to all of you who have left us such lovely reviews, especially on iTunes and so many five-star ratings too. Thank you. These really do help others to find the show and they get us noticed above all the other noise out there. So if you have enjoyed today's broadcast, I would love it if you could take just a moment to click on those five little stars at the end of the episode. Well, until the next time we chat, take good care. Go well. Bye-bye. Our Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, with production by Amaryllis Earle and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue. With thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.